Good morning, everybody. Are you glad to be here? I'm glad to be here. Um, we've, been, we've been talking about this table series for a while, and I'm not going to do a full recap of, of everything that um, each speaker has said. And if you have missed any of them, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to each one. But there were kind of two main things that we wanted uh, to come through when we decided to do this table series. And the first one was to remember. The first thing is to remember. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe in him, the first thing we wanted everyone to do was to remember and to reflect on when you were invited to the table of the Lord. Remember and reflect on the time when God sought you out in your time of need, when he saw you in your place of brokenness and said, I have a place for you at my table. Radical devotion, radical devotion to God because of his love for us. That's what we're hoping comes out of the remembering, that we don't just stay in that place and sit there, but it stirs up a deep love for everything that he's done for us and rescued us from. The second thing would be to respond. There's always a response that is required from us. When we hear good news, we're meant to respond to it. When we hear an invitation about the goodness of God and what he's offering us, we're meant to respond to it. So realizing that Jesus ate with those who were outcasts in his culture and in his time, realize that in his example, we're supposed to do the same thing. So some of it is very practical as far as a response, inviting others into our homes. We talked about it last week. Um, it could be iced tea on the front porch or tea in your living room. It could be a full spread and you go all out and you make this amazing, you know, the modern proper kind of meal that you just, you set the table and it's fancy and someone just feels so blessed. So there's an actual response that we're asking of you because radical hospitality is a hallmark of our faith. And I was just talking with a friend about this who um, is more in like a, a, a small church, house church type movement where they don't gather, you know, in a big building and how each time they gather, there's, there's a meal that they're gathering over. And that's what the early believers did. They gathered in homes around meals but this radical hospitality is not just hosting someone. It's inviting them in to a relationship with God to say, come, would you come? Come, come talk with me. Come pray with me. Come worship with me. Let's go experience God. I want you to taste and see very tangible things. Taste and see that God is good. So today, since we're talking about mercy, of course, I'm going to define it, but I just want to make sure that we all are, need to hear this message or that we all can get something out of this message. So how many of you have ever done something like where you've broken something or backed into somebody's car or you spilt something and you made a mistake? Honest mistake. Like just, you didn't mean to, oops, I'm so sorry. And you needed, thank you, Peter. You needed some mercy. 
from, you know, my boys have a knack for, they love to wrestle in the house and fight each other in the house, which I'm cool with. Just don't break my stuff. And they actually have a long history of breaking mirrors, um, you know, things falling off the walls, stools, they shatter them. Uh, It's kind of fun. It's kind of fun because I get to practice mercy every single time. There was one time where it was a really nice big mirror and I'd gotten it for really cheap and I love finding things for really cheap. It just makes me happy. And it was so hard when they broke it and it smashes to just go, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I'm glad you're not hurt. And it's, you're more important than the mirror. But I didn't really believe it when I said it. Um, I just didn't. Let's be honest. I love that mirror. So how many of us, though, have maybe done something where, let's just say, this isn't an accident. This is something like, you know you shouldn't have had too many drinks, and you got a little drunk. Maybe you should not have engaged in that conversation with that person. Maybe it went over some boundaries. It got into gossip or got into something else. Or maybe you intentionally did something. You intentionally hurt someone. Anyone want to admit to that, those things? Okay, I just want to make sure. Um, Because we all are in need of mercy. We all need mercy. And mercy, most definitions, is just compassion shown to someone. Usually compassion shown to someone that um, maybe could be in a position of punishment Uh, there's a movie called Just Mercy and it's about a man who was convicted and and put on death row and a young lawyer who tries to um, get him exonerated. Um, So there is punishment that he was expecting and mercy was shown to him. In the Bible, mercy has a lot of different definitions. The word, you know, different translations translate differently, but same thing here. It's not just canceling out a sentence. There's an element of compassion. And it was interesting with some of the connotations of mercy. The connotations were like either brotherly love or they would use the word womb as in like a mother's love and compassion on the baby inside of her. And compassion is a character of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Exodus 34, 6, where God declares his name and his nature to Moses. Now, we have the opportunity to name God and and say, God, you're this to me. But when God declares who he is, and he declares it all throughout the Bible, we should pay attention. So in most translations, it says, Lord, Lord, but that can be Yahweh, and and that can just mean um, the eternal one, the self-existing one, the absolute unchanging one. So God's saying, this is who I am. And then he says, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
and compassion precedes God's intervention in the lives of the Israelites and his people. They're disobeying, they're rebelling, and then God will talk about, but I I have compassion for you. They're crying out for help, even though they messed up, even though they disobeyed God. And he's like, I have compassion on my people. Jesus, before he, you know, did a lot of his miracles, the authors of the, the gospels would mention that Jesus had compassion on the person he was healing. He had compassion on the masses in the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So mercy and compassion go hand in hand. So because of God's great compassion for each one of us, he invites us to sit at his table of mercy. And as I'm talking today, I just want you to think about where have you experienced mercy in your own life? Where has mercy been offered to you when you didn't deserve it? But I also want you to think about who might God be asking you to offer mercy to? Someone who doesn't deserve it. So we're going to talk about um, two things today, two main things. One, what we have to receive to sit at the table of mercy with God. And then what we have to give to sit at this table of mercy. So for the first part, we're going to be in our Bibles. So if you have actual Bibles, get them out. We're just going to be kind of like jumping around a little bit. And then if you have phones, you may get them out now if you have your Bible app on them. But um, we're going to first talk about uh, a story in the Old Testament, this fascinating story of mercy. And then we're going to talk about a teaching of Jesus in the New Testament for what we need to give to sit at this table of mercy, how we're supposed to behave. So one of the things we have to receive is God's extravagant kindness to us in our brokenness. Now you might be like, that is great news. What? We have to receive God's extravagant kindness to us? Yes. Now how many of you have a hard time receiving good things in your life? You have a hard time when people want to help you. You have a hard time when people compliment you. You have a hard time being just in a position of neediness, maybe. But maybe it's hard to believe that someone's actually genuinely offering you kindness. We also have to, to receive God's kindness, we have to admit our brokenness. So there is this absolutely stunning story in 2 Samuel, and it's about a man named Mephibosheth. It's a long word, and I'm probably going (laughs) to... Long name. I'm probably going to stumble over it a few times. Mephibosheth, 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 Um, Mephibosheth. And he was a son of Jonathan, who was best friends with David, which means he's a grandson of Saul. So if you want to go ahead, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. And I'm going to start kind of at the beginning. Let's start with 2 Samuel 4.4. But I I read, or I found out about this story because I read a book by Max Lucado called In the Grip of Grace. And um, you might be like, oh, cool, cheesy Christian author. (laughs) But when I read that book, I was 19 years old. And 
I was consumed under this like weight of lies that I had believed about myself, powerful lies. And any time the enemy offers us a little bit of bait, you know, here's, here's something I need you to believe about yourself, and then we agree with it, he has permission to mess with us. And he was messing with me because I had all these things that I was just like, this is just too easy for me to believe all these things. I believed that um, I had messed up beyond redemption. Um, I believed that, um, you know, God was just waiting for me to fail. I was supposed to, you know, be this perfect kid and he was waiting for me to fail. And then when I did, he was disappointed. He was disgusted. He turned away from me. You know, and then there were other things where I was like, well, but it's not just me. I mean, if God was so powerful and and so loving, why doesn't God stop bad things from happening? You know, there's times where you know you've sinned, but then there's times when others sin against you, like God's a God of justice. Why isn't he stopping this? You know, and if he's even real, maybe he's not real, but if he's real, is he good? I don't know. But then if he is good, would he want me back? So at that time, I, I couldn't even imagine that God was already pursuing me. He was already like in the business of, I've got you and I'm going to get your heart. I'm going to show you my love and kindness and extravagant mercy. He already was doing that. And that was like one of my greatest times of need and my lowest points of shame. And he was right there. So 2 Samuel 4, 4 is where I'm going to start. And in some, it's interesting, in some translations, this is where Mephibosheth is introduced, in some translations, it's literally in parentheses. Like, the story wasn't important enough to actually be told. It's just in parentheses. So 4.4 says, Now Saul's son Jonathan had a son who was crippled in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan arrived from Jezreel. Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And Saul was the king at that time. His nurse picked him up and fled. But in her haste to get away, he fell and was injured. Mephibosheth was his name. So that's the introduction there to Mephibosheth. Now we're going to go over to 2 Samuel 9. So go over a few more pages or 2 Samuel 9. Now in those days when a king was in power, if you were part of the royal family... No matter how dysfunctional it was, you were afforded safety and benefits. Now, people, maybe, maybe it was a more precarious position. People wanted to get in good with the king or become king. But at that point, Mephibosheth would have been, like, protected. But when a new king comes into town, so Saul has died, Jonathan has died. And when David, you know, David's this anointed king that's going to come into place. In those days, kings would wipe out the entire family of the former king. And you do that to protect your position. You do that to make sure there's no, nobody, you know, the grandson, because this is how wars start, right? Maybe you didn't do something to me, but you did something to my parents or my grandparents, and I'm going to get you back. So you would wipe out all of the, the family. So the nurse is running with Mephibosheth, and she has a good reason to run and to make haste and get out of there. But by no fault of his own, he becomes crippled. So in 2 Samuel 9, first verse, so David has now become king, he's fought all these wars, he's kind of settled. And so he's contemplating, 
in this, this um, passage right here. And so David asks, is anyone still left from the family of Saul so that I may extend kindness to him for the sake of Jonathan? Now, back in 1 Samuel, Jonathan and David are best friends. Jonathan sees the writing on the wall and he knows Saul's going to die. You're going to become king. And he asks him to make a promise. Jonathan asked David, will you promise to show kindness to my family? Like when this all goes down, will you please show kindness to my family? And David agrees. So he's asking, is there anyone still left from the family of Saul so that I may extend kindness to him for the sake of Jonathan? Now there was a servant from Saul's house named Ziba. So he was summoned to David. The king asked him, are you Ziba? He replied, at your service. The king asked, is there not someone left from Saul's family that I may extend God's kindness to him? Ziba said to the king, one of Jonathan's sons is left. Both of his feet are crippled. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba told the king, he is at the house of Mekir, son of Amiel, Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar, the, the reason that's important to know the, the meaning of that name is just that um, it meant no nothing town or no pasture or a pastureless place. So it was a, a desperate place. So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed low with his face toward the ground. He was probably terrified. David said, Mephibosheth? He replied, yes, at your service. David said to him, don't be afraid because I will certainly extend kindness to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. I will give back to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will be a regular guest at my table. Now, if you look at kings back then, sometimes the, in, in uh, that time, there were times where kings would actually have their enemies sit with them at their table and eat with them. It was almost like kind of like you keep your enemies close, you know, um, but they didn't give back land, they didn't, they didn't, you know, bless them. They might've given them rations, but it was not a, a blessing. And so he said, Mephibosheth bowed and said, of what importance am I your servant that you show regard for a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's attendant, and said to him, everything that belonged to Saul and to his entire house, I hereby give to your master's grandson. You will cultivate the land for him, you and your sons and your servants. You will bring its produce and it will be food for your master's grandson to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will be a regular guest at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So all these people are just going to be working for Mephibosheth, making sure that he's comfortable, his land is worked for, and he gets to eat at the king's table. So Ziba said to the king, your servant will do everything that my lord, the king has instructed his servant to do. So Mephibosheth was a regular guest at David's table, just as though he were one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth, his name, there's a lot of, you know, different ways to say it, but it's he who breaks apart shame. He who destroys shame. He who, dis not disperses. Dis not dispenses, disperses shame, <laughs> dispels shame, sorry. <laughs> 
Basically, his name means one who takes shame and shatters it. So I was thinking about this, you know, you make these analogies and no analogy is perfect, but Mephibosheth was born into a dysfunctional family. Now don't raise your hands for this, guys. Just nod in your spirit. Anyone else born into a dysfunctional family? Mephibosheth was crippled by no fault of his own. Anyone else been crippled by life circumstances? Things that were completely out of your control? Things that you didn't deserve, you didn't ask for? It wasn't like someone was coming after you, but you, you got hit? And how many of us have been like Mephibosheth, so he goes and lives in Lodabar, and he's an adult when he comes to the king's palace because he has a son, a young son with him. But So he goes and lives in this hidden place, completely defined. Do you, you notice how many times they mention he's crippled? Some, some uh, uh, translations say he's lame. That was he, what he was defined by. And back then, if you were crippled or lame, it wasn't just like, oh, you ha- you're differently abled. You were looked down upon. That was your, you were defined by that. There was no, but he's a great person or he's a great leader. You were defined by that. How many of us have been defined by our brokenness or allowed it to to define us? And then he goes and lives in this hidden place and he experiences loneliness, probably rejection, fear, wondering, is King David ever going to come for me? I mean, I heard stories that he and my dad were best buds at one time, but he's kind of, you know, kicking butts and taking names and when's he going to come for me? And I think about like, you know, how many times we live in that place of fear and wondering when is the ball going to drop? When is someone going to come for me? When is that thing that I did going to come back to haunt me? And then out of nowhere, David sends for him. He gets sent for by a king. And I think about sometimes when we approach God, when we're sent for by the king, what's our emotional state? Are we ecstatic? Are we like, finally, I've been waiting for a seat at your table. It's about time you came and got me. No, but a lot of us, we experience fear. What is God going to say to me? How is he going to treat me? He knows all the things that I've done. He's seen all the things that I've been involved in. What's his response going to be towards me? We're not sure. Because if we were sure, we'd probably remain in that place with him all the time, right? We'd remain in that place of intimacy with the father. But we've been invited, just like Mephibosheth, to this table of mercy, where we get to sit and feast and eat like one of the king's sons all the days of our life. And, you know, he was shown kindness. Like I said, it, there was the whole, the, the habit or pattern of you keep your enemies close, but he was given land and, you know, Saul's servant was probably not too happy about the fact that he and all of his family and all of his sons had to now provide for Mephibosheth. But God does that for us. We don't deserve it, but he comes in and he's like, you know what? I'm actually going to move these circumstances around for you. You know, I'm actually going to just do these things that you could have never seen happening because I want you to know that I'm taking care of you, that I love you, and I want you to enjoy yourself at my table. 
So to sit at this table of mercy, we have to accept God's kindness. And that heart posture that we need to have is one of humility. A humility that knows our brokenness. A humility that knows the things that we are, that we're, that we're actively involved in that are breaking us or crippling us. And it means we have to trust his intentions towards us, that they're kind and that they're good and that he wants the best for us. So how easy is it for you to accept God's kindness? When he invites you to the table and he sends for you, come eat with me. Are you like, oh, I don't look that good. I've been living a hard life. I just, I just don't know if he'll accept me based on my looks or, oh, if he looks into my eyes, he's going to know where I'm at and he's going to judge me or he's going to send me away. How easy is it for you to accept God's kindness? How comfortable are you sitting and eating at the table of mercy? And one of the questions I was thinking about, like, do you feel like you belong there? Some of us would say, yeah, no, totally. I love God's mercy, love God's kindness. I'm so glad he died on the cross for me, rose from the dead. I'm I'm here. I'm a king's kid. I'm a son and I'm a daughter. Um, But some of us are still a little unsure. Do we belong? Now, the other thing, though, when we sit at this table, if we're willing to come here in humility, we're willing to admit our brokenness, and we're willing to accept God's kindness and we sit at the table and we're eating and we're drinking. There's this whole other part of the deal though that sometimes we don't like as much. If we sit at this table of mercy where mercy has been shown to us, it means that we now are required to extend mercy to others. So there's this whole catch where the mercy table is not fair. It's not fair. Um, Do you guys have the video clip of, oh, okay, you got that. Okay, so one of Pete's favorite movies is Les Mis. Um, He likes the old version, the 1998 version. And there's a classic scene in here of Mercy, the main character is a criminal, Jean Valjean. And um, he gets, he goes to this uh, monastery uh, church and he is, you know, kind of given refuge and, and taken in. And then I think we're going to see what happens. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna explain it to you real fast. I'm gonna try and go as fast as that. Okay, so Jean Valjean, gets, he's um, in this. I just want to make sure. Okay, he's uh, there's a priest, and the priest um, is taking him in, being kind to him, and he decides he's going to steal from the priest. So he's going to steal this silver, and uh, he takes all these spoons and flatware, and it's at nighttime, and it's in the dark, and the priest comes kind of shuffling in, and Jean Valjean sees him, looks him right in the eyes and hits him. And and the old man falls on the floor. 
The next scene is the priest, and he's just kind of, you know, doing some garden work, and he's telling one of the ladies there, um, you know, we're just going to use the wooden spoons from now on. Quit asking about this, you know, because now she's, she's all riled up that he's stolen from them. And guards, soldiers, knock on the door of the church, the courtyard, and they bring Jean Valjean in and he has this hood over his face and he's brought in and they're like, we found this riffraff, you know, and he had this whole bag of silver and he said, could you believe this? He said that you gave it to him. And the priest says, I'm so glad you found him. Yes, I mean, I told you to take the candlesticks. Why didn't you take the candlesticks too? The candlesticks are worth all this money. You should have taken those too. I'm so upset with you. And then he's like, okay, to the lady, will you get our guests some wine and some, you know, give them something to drink? And they all go off. And he tells him, I have bought you. He said, you are no longer a thief and a criminal. I'm going to cry just telling it. You're no longer a thief and a criminal. That doesn't define you anymore. That's not who you get to be. I've bought you, you know, with the silver. And he's like, now I give you back to God. That's the whole end of that. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Um, let's, let's turn to Matthew 18 because there's this story here and there's, there's other stories too, but it really highlights how seriously God takes us showing mercy to others. Because sometimes the whole struggle is just to get to this table of mercy and believe that it's really good. But then sometimes when we've sat at this table for a long time and we've gotten used to it, and now we're totally comfortable. This is my seat. That's your seat. Oh, are we having salmon again? Oh, steak. Oh my gosh. You know, where we kind of get a little, we get a little complainy. We get a little bored with the king's food. We get a little bored with his drink. We're like, oh, it's the same people all the time. But God takes this extending mercy to others very seriously. And it's something that we have to do to remain at the table. (laughs) So Matthew 18, we're going to start in verse 21. The parable of the unforgiving slave. God's talking about the kingdom of heaven here. And the kingdom of heaven is not what it is like when we get to heaven. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is here too. And this is what we are supposed to live like here on earth. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. As he began settling his accounts, a man who owed 10,000 talents, which is just a whole lot of money, um, was brought to him. Because he was not able to repay it, the Lord ordered him to be sold along with his wife, children, and whatever he possessed, and repayment to be made. Then the slave threw himself to the ground before him, saying, Be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. The Lord had compassion on that slave and released him and forgave him the debt. But after he went out, that same slave found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 silver coins, which is not a lot of money. So he grabbed him by the throat and started to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. 
Then his fellow slave threw himself down and begged him, same thing here, be patient with me and I will repay you. But he refused. Instead, he went out and threw him in prison until he repaid the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were very upset (laughs) and they went and told on him. They told their Lord everything that had taken place. Then his Lord called the first slave and said to him, evil slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave just as I showed it to you? And in anger, his Lord turned him over to the prison guards to torture him until he repaid all he owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a little bit more intense. Just as compassion is central to the table of mercy, forgiveness is central to the table of mercy. And how often do we get settled at our seat here at the table and we've gotten comfortable finally, bring on all the, you know, lavish all your love on me, God. And then we look over and seated across from us is someone that we don't think should be there. And Christians, you know, we're, we're notorious for this. I'm not trying to speak death over us. I'm just saying Christians have a reputation because we were once lost and we were in a place of, you know, being bound by our sin. We were in a place of shame. We were in a place of jealousy or pride or anger. We were addicted. We were helpless. We were lonely. And then God comes and rescues us and he saves us. And we start to understand the benefits that we get being a part of his family now. And then we turn right around and we go, oh, I'm not a son and a daughter anymore. I'm actually a gatekeeper. I'm a gatekeeper at this table of mercy. So, um, you know, I want to make it harder for others to get in. They're a little smelly. They don't look that great. They won't look good on my Instagram stories. They have bad manners. They chew with their mouth open. But our good deeds don't get us a seat at the table. Our spiritual lineage, our Christian parents, don't get us a seat at the table. Our morals and our ethics don't get us a seat at the table. Our correct theologies and right doctrine doesn't get us a seat at the table. Our conservative voting or our social justice voting doesn't get us a seat at the table. Our invitation to the table is solely based off of the character of the one inviting us. It is not based off of our character. We don't get invited to sit at this table with the king because he's so impressed with us. And then we don't have to decide that now we're going to become super vigilant in guarding the seat. Like, don't worry, God, no riffraff's going to get in here. No rebels, no ragamuffins. I mean, we are going to make you look good. Our place here is not reserved because of our reputation. It is solely reserved because of God's reputation. He has a reputation of finding the most broken, whether you've been broken by circumstances out of your control or whether you've been broken because you intentionally did things and didn't expect the consequences. 
This is why we get to sit at the table. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his compassion, the compassion in his eyes when he looks at us across the table that shatters our shame. It gives us confidence to approach him. His compassion gives us confidence to approach him. We're going to go into, um, are we going into the song? I'm sorry, you were, you were trying to tell me. Help me out, babe. We're going to go into communion. And uh, if the ushers want to come up and prepare these tables, but... Um, okay, just for time's sake, what we're going to do is there's a song we're going to sing... And uh, it's not really a song where we're singing to God. It's more about a song of acknowledging who God says we are and who we are in him. So it's a time of ministry, a time for us to take maybe some of the wrong thinking in our mind and put it aside. Um, and uh, ushers, we're just going to actually let them come up on their own. As we sing this song, what I would invite you to do is just to one, get to a place of accepting that you've been invited to the table, that you've been invited to the table of mercy and truly believing it. And that might be the thing that you have to wrestle with a little bit today. Or it might be, as Tamar said, that you believe you're at the table, but you struggle with the others at the table or you struggle with... Um, with just, I, I, don't, I don't think that person can be forgiven. I don't think that person can be invited. But that as we come up and we take communion, what we're remembering is that God has invited each one of us, not for a performance, but just because of who he is. And that it is our role to then turn around and offer that same love, that same mercy, that same grace to everyone we encounter, regardless of whether we think they deserve it or not. So again, just as we sing this, you come up on your own and, and you're just going to take it. You're not going to wait for one of us to tell you to eat the cracker and drink the juice. You do it on your own. This is between you and God. Um, I guess I'll just share it now then. This song spoke to me, uh, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that God's been talking to me about identity for a long time now and for me to call myself beloved because that's what he says I am and that's what he says about you too. And uh, with this song, when it came out, I just listened to it on repeat constantly, but I listened to it for a different reason, not to believe that I was beloved. It's because I was struggling with forgiving some people and every time I listened to it, I thought about those people and I was like, God calls them his beloved. There have been, you know, people over my lifetime that for whatever reason, I've just been started, I've started thinking about these things and going, it's not fair. What happened to me isn't fair. And I'm mad. I'm mad that God would show them mercy. <laughs> but I would remind myself, he calls them his beloved too.